As we recover from our hurts and hang-ups, we should reach out to others who are in pain. This is the eighth message in the series, Recover, entitled, Reach. Here is Pastor Dale O'Shields. We're going to wrap up today with one word, and the word I want to share with you today is the simple word, reach. Recovery involves learning how to do some reaching. Now, you might say, what does that have to do with recovery? I'll explain it to you more in a moment. Let me talk about that word reach just briefly. The word reach is an action word. You can't sit still and reach at the same time. You have to do something. Reach is different. It's something that you do. You extend or stretch yourself toward something. You move in a direction. You embrace something. That's what, that's what reaching is all about. No one reaches passively. So today I'm going to talk to you about some action things that you need to do because reaching is an action. And I'm going to talk to you about what reaching has to do with recovery. How do those two words go together? What does it link us to in terms of relationship with God and relationship with the people of God? I'm going to use the screen today because it's going to help me to lay out some things for you. And let me start by giving you the first of my four points today. And if you're taking notes, and I would really encourage you to do so, here's our first point together. It's simply this, pain produces inward thinking and isolated living. Let me explain, first of all, this word pain and what it has to do with recovery. Recovery is all about, generally all about dealing with some kind of pain in your life. You don't need to recover from things that are going well, right? If everything's going good, if your health's good, you don't need to recover. If your finances are good, you don't need to recover. And so anytime we talk about recovery, recovery is connected to pain. And so you recover from some kind of pain in your life. It might be spiritual pain that you're going through. It might be emotional pain or psychological pain or relational pain. But you know you need recovery when you experience, when you're experiencing some level of pain in your life. Now, anytime you experience experience pain, pain does something to people. When you go through any kind of pain in your life, pain causes certain things. Pain causes a reaction. If you hit your, 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 your finger with a hammer, I assure you, you're going to have some kind of reaction. Hopefully, it's a, it's a praise the Lord or something that's nice and Christian when you have that moment. But most of us are going to at least have an action that comes back, will draw back in pain. In fact, sometimes we talk about that phrase, the person drew back in pain. And so pain causes you to withdraw. It produces something in your life. I'll come back to this word in just a moment. Now, every time you experience pain, you're going to turn. We all have a tendency to turn toward ourselves. We start thinking about ourselves. We start thinking about our pain. And we also tend to isolate. We tend to pull away from people. Think about the times you've been hurt emotionally. What you generally will do in your life as you want it, you pull back in some way. And something generally happens with your relationships. For some of us, as soon as we get hurt, we got to go to our room, we close the door, we, we, we shut out our phone off, and we just want to be in our room by ourselves for some period of time because we, wanna, we want some space in our life to deal with the pain that's going on. And so pain, emotional, spiritual, relational pain always produces in us a thought about you start thinking and focusing on yourself. I assure you, going back to the illustration a moment ago, if you hit your finger with a hammer, that finger is going to be the only thing you're thinking about. 
your finger. You're going to be focused on that one thing, the pain that is isolated right here, and you're going to withdraw or pull back or isolate in some way to deal with that pain. And so it leads to this process in life. Now I want to share with you a story of a man who had this kind of experience in his life, and his name is Elijah. I want you to see how pain in Elijah's life produced inward thinking and isolated living. We're going to go to 1 Kings chapter 19, but before I go there, let me give you a little bit of the back background of the story. Elijah was one of the prophets of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes of the north, and Elijah was a prophet to the kings during a period of time in Israel's history. And the time in which Elijah existed and ministered was the time of the reign of a man by the name of Ahab, and he had a wife by the name of Jezebel. Anybody remember Jezebel, right? Not a very good name, not a very good memory. And so it's Ahab and Jezebel, and Elijah is the prophet during this time. Ahab and Jezebel were very evil people. They did not worship Jehovah God. They worshiped the the gods of Baal and all kind of false gods. And so it was a horrible spiritual time in Israel. When you come to 1 Kings chapter 18, you'll discover that it's a period when Elijah calls forth a confrontation between the God of Israel, Jehovah God, and the prophets of Baal. And there on chapter, chapter 18 of 1 Kings, there's this great event that transpires at Mount Carmel where there's a confrontation with Elijah and the Jehovah one God and 450 prophets of Baal. And God really shows himself off there in a mighty way. It's a great moment, but it's been a stressful moment for Elijah. Let me ask you, how many of you would like to stand up to an army of 450 people by yourself. So it's been a stressful time, a difficult moment. He's had to use all the faith that he could muster up during that time. He's been in a confrontational situation. And then as soon as it's over, he receives news that Jezebel has made a decision to kill him. And Jezebel is sending a message to Elijah, you're as good as dead, man. Now that you've done this, I'm after you. We're going to chase you down. We're going to find you. We're going to destroy you. You can read all of this in 1 Kings 18, going into chapter 19. And let's pick up in chapter 19 with verse number 3. And let's see how Elijah responded. Would you agree with me that Elijah is in a painful situation? Shake your head if you agree, right? He's in a painful situation right now, and let's see what he does, and let's see if our theory that I laid out for you a moment ago that pain causes you to move into inward thinking and isolated living, let's see if it works out in Elijah's life. So here's what it says in chapter three, uh, chapter 19, verses 3 and 4. Elijah was afraid, and what? So as soon as he hears that Jezebel's going to kill him, he experiences fear, and he begins to run for his life. So now you see he's thinking about one thing. He's thinking about how am I going to survive? It's all inward right now. He's thinking about himself, and he's running. He's isolating himself from anybody else around. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, the Bible says he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey. Where? Into the wilderness. Would you agree with me that a wilderness is an isolated place, right? He came to a broom bush, sat down. The Bible says that he uh, under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Have you ever prayed a prayer like this? I've had enough. 
God, I don't want to live anymore. He's not suicidal. He's actually asking God to shorten his life because of his pain. This is not in any way an endorsement of someone taking their own life. It's not a prayer like that at all. It's just simply him expressing his feelings at the moment. But here's what I want you to see. In the midst of his pain, notice what his pain did to him. His pain moved him into isolated, into inward thinking and isolated living. He withdrew. And the same is true for you and me. You and I need to grasp that today if we're going to understand the rest of today's message. When you experience emotional pain or spiritual pain or relational pain, the first thing that all of us have a tendency to do is to pull into ourselves, to think about ourselves, to withdraw, to try to find some realm of protection for our lives. Let me take you now to the next point that I want to share with you today. The second thing I want you to see is withdrawal actually hinders your recovery. Withdrawal will hinder your capacity to get over things in your life, to get back to better. As I said, hurt causes you to pull away, pull away from your relationships, pull away from your connections, and pull away from community. This is one of the biggest and the most frequently used tricks of Satan. Listen to me. This is one of the things that Satan specializes in. First of all, he wants to get you hurt in some way, so life can be painful. Can I get an amen right there, right? Life can be really painful. And so you go through pain, and what the enemy wants to do is drive you into inward thinking and drive you into isolated living, because as soon as you're inwardly thinking only and isolating yourself from people, he has an advantage over you. He can talk to you and distort things in your life and in your mind all day long because you have no other voices in your life. And suddenly, you know, all you're listening to are the lies of Satan because he's pulled you into a world by yourself, and he's lying to you. He's telling you all these kinds of things about your life, just like he did for Elijah. You're, it's, it's all over with for you. You can't take anymore. You might as well give up. You might as well die. These are all lies of the adversary, and we see it in the animal world. In the animal world, you see that predators have one thing that they try to do to their foe. They try to isolate them from the herd. And if a wolf can isolate a sheep from a flock of sheep, then suddenly that sheep has very little chance of making it. And so we see in the stories exactly what happened in Elijah's life. Now, what was the turning point to get Elijah back on track again? We're going to see here in just a moment. I'm going to read for you, going back to 1 Kings chapter 19. We're going to see this turning point that happens in Elijah's life, but the turning point is all about God getting him back away from isolation and withdrawal back into community. Let's pick up now in 1 Kings chapter 19, beginning in verse number 13. This is going to be, these verses will be on the big screen for you, so just listen as I read them. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, and I'll explain heard what in just a moment. What was that about? When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. So he's now gone into a cave. Do you see how isolated he is? He's in a cave, all right? Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And notice this. Where's Elijah? He's in the mouth of a cave. He's in an isolated place. 
When God confronts him here in this moment, that's what the, the phrase means when Elijah heard it. God's voice came to him in a still small voice or a gentle whisper. And so God comes to Elijah in the cave and says, Elijah, what are you doing here? Why are you in this inward place? Why have you isolated yourself from everyone? What are you doing here, Elijah? God, don't you understand? I'm the only guy that's left around here, and now they're trying to kill me too. Now notice what God says to him next. Verse 15, the Lord said to him, go back. Everybody say, go back. Why is there a go back there? Go back to what? Go back to some place where you're not alone. Go back to some place where there's community. Go back to some place where there can be some other positive voices in your life. Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint. Notice this. He gives him an assignment. Anoint Hazael, king of Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat from Abel Meholah to succeed you as as a prophet. So he says, I want you to go back where you came from because your withdrawal is doing what? It is hindering your recovery. You can't get back on track, Elijah, unless you go back. Your withdrawal is hindering your recovery. Let me see if I can explain this principle to you with a graph here. Actually, let me give you this verse first. This is the verse that kind of ties this into the graph I'm going to show you. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have, bowed, have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Now, here's what God's saying. Elijah, you're not the only one here. I'm going to bring you back out of all this. You're not the only guy hurting. There's 7,000 more that I want to take you back to because I want to get you back into community. Let me go to the graph now to show you what we're talking about here. Here's how withdrawal works in your life. Everybody looking at this? Look closely. When you have pain in your life, what does your pain cause you to do? Withdrawal. Now, withdrawal for a period of time can be healthy. If you've been hurt in some way and you're angry, you probably need to withdraw before you slap somebody or hurt somebody or do something you shouldn't do in that moment that you're going to regret. So you need to step back a little bit, right? So withdrawal is not always bad, okay? When you get hurt emotionally, it's appropriate to take a little bit of time to get your act together, to pull back a little bit. If couples are fighting, one of the best things to do in a marriage is give yourself a little space for a few minutes, okay? Take some time off, get a little separation there so you can work. And so withdrawal is not always bad. There's a period of time when you're experiencing pain and withdrawal from pain that it can be healthy to get your act together. I'm going to bring a spot right there and let me explain what I mean by this movement toward this bell-shaped curve. If you've ever done research, you understand something about a bell-shaped curve. Now, here's the situation. It's okay for a period of time to do some withdrawal. If you go back and read the story of Elijah, he was on his own for a period of time, and God fed him and let him sleep and do some things that helped him to get back again. But there came a moment when God said, enough is enough. You need to get back to your community again. But there's a healthy period of time. I don't know. I can't give you a time frame in terms of when you've been hurt. How long is healthy? For some people, it might take you an hour to sort of get back on track. Somebody, it's a day. For some people, it might be a couple of days to kind of get back on track. Some of you are working on a couple of decades now to try to get back together with things. But there's a point of time where it's healthy to have some withdrawal. But there also comes a point when that withdrawal, if you don't change at that point and get back in relationship with God, relationship with people, that withdrawal, instead of it being healthy for you, leading you to a place of health, there's a moment when it starts going downward on you and actually hinders your recovery. 
And so there's this point that you get to in life that if you get stuck here, you're going to go this way. But if you handle it the right way and do what Elijah did, he gets back in community, you're going to get back, move forward to a place of health and get back to, what's the word again? Better. But this becomes a choice point for you. And there's some of you here today that you've had some hurts and pains in your life. Some of you watching online today, you've had some hurt and pain in your life. And it's been challenging. It's been difficult. It's been hard. And you found yourself in withdrawal. In fact, this entire past year, most of us have been in some level of withdrawal. And you notice that over a period of time that that withdrawal is not healthy for you. It's not been healthy for us emotionally to be separated from people. We understand why and we get it. We understand the the virus and how we've had to deal with it. It's certainly appropriate that we've had to do what we've had to do. But there's a moment when you say, I need to get back with some people. I need some connection points in my life for me to get healthy again, and that's why we need to turn toward this health again and move in this direction. But Elijah made that choice to go back to better. He had found himself in a lot of pain. He spent some time in this season, but there was a moment when God said, there's enough. There's 7,000 back where you came from that still have not bowed their knees to Baal. You need to get back with those folks because they're going through what you're going through. You're not the only one that needs to have a pity party. Everybody is going through their own set of challenges, and you need to be a part of that community once again. So I want you to see as well that that an extended period of withdrawal actually hinders your recovery instead of healing and helping your recovery. Here's my third point today. Right relationships are the very things that help to heal us. Now I'm going to emphasize a couple of words here, help. Because you and I need help if we're going to recover, right? And I want to emphasize the word right, connected to the word relationships. When you're at that moment, I've gone through pain, I need some recovery in my life, and I'm all kind of inwardly thinking and focused and isolated somewhat in the way that I'm thinking and living, and I realize that's going to hinder me toward my recovery. What's going to be, what do I need at that turning point to move forward and positive in my, positively in my life? You need, one of the things you need are, say it with me, right? Relationships. The very thing that God said to Elijah. God said, Elijah, go back where you came from. I want you to connect with those 7,000 again, and I want you to also anoint three different people, the last one being Elisha, who's going to be your successor. You need a relationship with him. You need the right relationships in your life. God told him exactly who to reach out to. Now, I'm glad that God didn't tell him to go back and connect with Jezebel, aren't you? He didn't tell him to go back and connect with someone that was going to be destructive in his life. He told him to go back and connect with people that were going to be constructive in his life. Can I get an amen? Because the wrong people in your life, the wrong relationships will actually deter and hinder your, your healing, but the right relationships can facilitate your healing. You need the right people in your life. There's a story in the New Testament I want to draw your attention to. It's found in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 18. Actually, it's not there. It's going to be on the screen. Luke chapter 8. I'll take this one back, and we'll get to that one in just a moment. It's going to be on Luke chapter 8, verse 43, and it'll be on the screen as I read it for you. Listen as I read. 
read, a woman in the crowd, this is Jesus ministering to a group of people, a woman in the crowd has suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding, and she could find no cure. Coming up behind Jesus, she touched the fringe of his robe. Immediately, the bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Now, notice that. You can't touch somebody unless you reach. There's a reach moment, okay? And she's reaching out in relationship. Are you with me? So she's now reaching out. She's taking a risk. She's now come through the crowd, and she reaches out. She extends herself. She's connecting with someone. In this case, it's Jesus. She's reaching out to touch him. She's reaching out to connect. And so she reaches out and touches, the Bible says, the fringe of his robe. Now, most, most theologians and most Bible scholars would emphasize the fact that, that more than likely she had actually crawled through the crowd, and in crawling through the crowd, therefore, she had access to the fringe, the tassels on the end of Jesus' robe. So she's in a low place. This is a hurting lady. This is someone that is in desperate need of recovery. She's also a lady who's been in isolation for 12 years. I'll get to that in just a moment. So she comes through the crowd. She's crawling, and she reaches out. She touches the fringe of Jesus' robe in that moment. And then notice what happens, verse 45. Who touched me, Jesus asked. Everyone denied it. And Peter said, Master, the whole crowd is pressing up against you. But Jesus said, Someone deliberately touched me, for I felt healing power go out from me. So there was a touch of faith that happened. When the woman realized that she could not stay hidden, she began to tremble and fell to her knees in front of him. The whole crowd heard her explain why she had touched him and that she had been immediately healed. And notice what happens next. Daughter, he said to her, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Here's what I want you to see. Here's a lady, as I mentioned a moment ago, who is in a terrible set of circumstances. For 12 years, she's been bleeding. And because of her hemorrhaging for 12 years by the community, she had been ostracized. She was considered unclean. She had had no friends and no community for 12 years. I mean, you think 2020 was hard. Add 11 more years to that. So for 12 years, she had been all by herself. She'd been living in her inward pain, and she'd been living in isolation. She'd gone to every doctor she knew, trying to find some, some kind of help. One of the other gospels says that she'd spent all she had trying to find a cure. And so it had been a desperate 12 years that she'd experienced. That day, she works her way through the crowd and touches the fringe of Jesus' garment, her, his robe. And there in that moment, she was healed. Now, why didn't Jesus just say, hey, God bless you, go ahead head. No, Jesus stopped everything in that moment and said, who touched me? Now, can you imagine a person who's been in isolation for 12 years, has been considered unclean for 12 years, suddenly being called out, saying, now she's got to confess up that she was the one that touched him. She was the one, and suddenly this lady that had been all alone is going to be the center of attention. The entire spotlight's going to come on her for this moment in history. And there she is standing having spent 12 years of feeling like she was a nobody, having spent 12 years of living in her own pain, having spent 12 years living in her own wilderness, and Jesus had to call her out. In that moment, Jesus called her out for a very specific reason. I believe that Jesus called her out because she needed to reconnect with community and community needed to reconnect with her. Everybody needed to know the lady that was unclean is now clean. 
the lady that was sick is now healed. And suddenly what Jesus was doing is he was bringing her not just a healing for herself that she could go back in her own little life and live it, but she was experiencing restoration and community. See, it's one thing to know that Jesus loves you and that you get healed from Jesus. It's another thing to be surrounded with some healthy people in your life as well. To connect with community. To know that you're surrounded by people who are now bringing you into the fold and allowing you to be a part of their world as well. What I want you to see is that right relationships are the thing that help heal us, but they have to be right relationships. In just a moment, I'm going to define this for you so you'll understand clearly what this is all about. I want you to see from the scriptures how important right relationships really are. Now, let's go to that verse we were looking at a moment ago, Matthew chapter 18. This is how important right relationships are in your life. I, again, truly, this verily, verily, truly, I'm telling you the truth. I tell you, Jesus' words, that if two of you on earth, notice not one, but two, that's relationship, right? Agree about anything to ask for, it will be done by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, what? There am I with them. So notice the power of relationship. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, and let us, that's a plural, is it not? Let us consider how we, would you agree that's a plural? May spur one another, that is in community, on toward love and good deeds, not giving up, meeting together, coming together as the family of God, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. That's relationship, right? And all the more as you see the day approaching. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's, what? Each other's burden, and in, the way, in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks there's something when they're not, they deceive themselves. James 5, verse 16, therefore confess your sins too, and... Pray for each other. Notice it's, it's plural, relationship, so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And then Romans chapter 12, verse 10, be devoted to one another in love. Is that relationship? Honor one another above yourselves. The fourth point I'm going to draw us into because it ties to those verses I just described. Those are the kind of people that we want to be, the kind of relationships we want to have. So here's what the end result is. Recovered people, what do they do? Recover people. I mentioned a moment ago the phrase right relationships. Right relationships is the idea of being a kind of person and being around the kind of people who are recovery-minded. I don't need to hang out with someone who's destructive minded. How about you? I want to be around people who are recovery minded. And I want us to be a church that is recovery minded church. Can I get an amen right there? Okay. We don't want to be a destructive minded church. We want to be a recovery minded church. Now I'll tell you what a recovery minded church is. You ready for this? A recovery minded church is really simple. It's made up of recovery minded people. It's not some mystical church that exists out there that becomes a recovery-minded church. No, a recovery-minded church is filled up with recovery-minded people. Always remember this. The church is not a place for perfect people. The church is not a museum for saints. The church is a hospital for sinners. Aren't you glad about that? Amen? Okay. 
So every time we come through these doors or you're watching online or wherever you might be, understand there's not a single perfect person sitting anywhere, watching anywhere. We all are in need of recovery, and we're at various places of recovery in our lives, right? Some of us are a little further down the road than others. Sometimes we get down the road, we end up back where we started from again. Ever had that moment in your life? You kind of take three steps forward and four steps backward. But we're all recovering. And so not, not to excuse our mistakes or failures, but to understand the reality that the church is filled with people who are trying to learn how to live a recovered life. And so we want to understand how to be, how to have the right relationships, how to be a recovery-minded person, how to experience recovery in our lives. So I'm going to share with you, as I describe here for us today, I'm going to share with you some very important principles about how you and I can become recovery-minded people. I'm going to give you an example of three types of people that, that, that you need to learn something about yourself from and learn something about others from when we talk about becoming recovery-minded. Let me see if I can describe it for you in these illustrations. By the way, is everybody still with me so far? Are you? Okay. Good. feels good just to preach to some people, actually, so it's pretty good. So. Here's a person who's going through pain. When you go through pain, it feels like you've just been thrown into the sea and you're over your head and you're doing everything you can just to keep your head above water, right? How am I going to get out of this? I'm just struggling. I can't seem to make it. And so really we could say that a person that's in pain is living in a sea of discouragement and a sea of despair and a sea of brokenness and a sea oftentimes of despair and, and hopelessness in life, desperation. They're just struggling around trying to make it out of this over-my-head situation, okay? How am I going to get out? And the person that's in this situation needs something. They need to be, get this thing to work right, rescued, or they need to be recovered, right? Because if you're over your head, you don't know how to swim in this environment, you don't know how to make it out of it, you need a lifeboat to come along. You need a life ring. You need something that's going to help you get out of it. You need help to get out of this situation. You need a relationship. If you've if you ever been in a situation before where you were, you're, you're drowning, I remember when I was a little kid, I fell in, off the dock of a, uh, of a boat ramp one time, and I, I couldn't swim at that moment. I was over my head, and I, I can re- still remember and recall, if you ever had an experience like this, you can probably recall it as well, just how, how desperate you felt, and like, I don't know what I'm doing. I remember tumbling over in the water, and then a few minutes later, one of my uncles grabbed me up and pulled me up and got me out and rescued me. I'm thankful for my uncle. Amen? Okay. Why? Because I, couldn't, I would have been more than likely dead. He happened to see me fall in, and he jumped in, and he rescued. I needed that kind of help. And so when you're in this kind of pain, you need the right relationship. I'm glad I had a relationship. I'm glad my uncle liked me. Okay. Okay. I'm glad he liked me because he helped me out of a situation. So you need right relationships to help you get out of this, this, these messes that we get ourselves in. We need to be rescued. We need to be recovered. Let me talk to you about three kinds of people. Two that are going to be totally unhelpful helpful for you and one that will be helpful for you. And I want to challenge you to think about not just getting those people in your life, but I want to talk to you and challenge you uh, to, to think about becoming this kind of person in your life. Let's talk about the kind of person that's totally unhelpful when you're in this situation. That's the Pharisee. The Pharisee looks at you, you're drowning, you're, you're just like struggling around, and the Pharisee, instead of helping you, the Pharisee, all the Pharisee do, does is look down and hear the key words of the Pharisee, they condemn you and judge you. 
Not sure why I can't get this to, to work right. So they look down and they, they put more pressure. Have you ever been around a person like that before? That here you are, you're struggling. All they want to do is heap more pressure and heap more guilt on you and make you feel worse for what you, what, than you already feel. And so as they're looking down in judgment against you, what's happening is this pressure is pushing you further under the water. It's not lifting up. There's no grace in their communication, no grace in their relationship. All they can do is think about making you feel worse about the mess that you're in. And in essence, what happens with the Pharisee is the Pharisee is self-righteous. The Pharisee says, I've never gotten myself in that kind of mess before. You're in your own water. You're going to have to learn to swim in it. I can't do anything for you. And they condemn you. Now understand something. This is not the spirit of Jesus. Jesus doesn't have a condemning, judging spirit. John 3, 16 and 17. Listen to it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. For, he, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus gave an illustration of this very thing in Luke chapter 18. He says, there were two men that went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other one was a publican. That was not a Republican. That was just a tax collector, okay? And they go to the temple to pray and both of them pray a prayer in the, in the temple. One, the, the self-righteous Pharisee says, God, I'm so thankful that I'm not like that guy over there. He's a sinner. He's, he does all these bad things and I obey your commandments, and I tithe, and I do all these things. God, I'm thankful that I'm not like him. He is a mess. You're really fortunate to have me, God. The Bible says that the poor tax collector bows his heart and head before God and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus asked the question, which of the two went out approved of by God? It wasn't the Pharisee. It was the publican. It was the tax collector, the sinner who acknowledged his need for God. Dear ones, let's not be a church of Pharisees, amen? We're not here to condemn the world. Our world is broken, and our world has a lot of mess in it, a lot of troubled people in it, a lot of difficulties in our world. But Jesus didn't send us into the world to push people under the water. He called us to come into the world to help people out of the water, amen? To not push people down, but to help people up. To be someone that is able to look at someone that's hurting and say, I can identify with you. I'm not going to take the view of a Pharisee. And by the way, if you're living around or you've invited a bunch of Pharisees in your life, it might be a good idea to break up with them. It's just as long as it's not your husband or your wife. Don't worry. I'm not justifying divorce here. But what I'm saying is that people that you can avoid in your life, that all they want to do is push you down, you don't need those kind of people in your life. Okay? It's very important. The strongest words that Jesus ever spoke were against the Pharisees. Here's a second group, second kind of person you want to, it's not going to be very much help to you. This is what I would call the over-identifier. This is the person that actually is, is incompetent. They just they can't help you, okay? The Pharisee is, is, is proud and insensitive to your needs, but here's this, this second person. He's the over-identifier. What I mean by that is not even able to help. What happens with this person is this. You start sharing your pain with them, and they begin to identify with your pain so much that they actually jump in the pool with you. Oh, you ever talk to someone like that before? You start sharing your problems, and in a matter of like 30 seconds, they're telling you about all theirs, okay? And so before long, you're both drowning in despair down here, okay? You're both sunking in, sunk in the water. And so this person is not going to help you because they're not in a place to help you. They're still dealing with issues in their own life. And so it's, it's really a lot of frustration happens with people because they're leaning into people to help them who really don't have the capacity to help them. Are you hearing me? 
If you try to lean into someone to help you, but they don't have the capacity to help you, all that's going to do is frustrate and disappoint you. It's like going to a water fountain that you know doesn't work. It's not worked in a year. It hasn't worked in 10 years, but you keep going to the same water fountain trying to get a drink from it, and there's no water coming out, and so you keep continually disappointing yourself because you're drinking from something that can't satisfy. It's not going to provide for you what you're looking for, and people who are going through the same kind of stuff that you're going through, all they're going to do is jump in the pool with you, and chances are both of you will drown. And so you don't want that kind of person in your life. Now, you want to, as, as you can, you want to help that kind of person. You need to love them, be friends to them. I'm not saying that you reject them from, from your life, but don't look to them for helping you out of your pain and don't, don't, don't expect that kind of person to be the solution for your life. But there is a third person that we all need to be, and that third person is the helper. And the helper has one primary characteristic in their life. They have, here's the key word, they have empathy. Let me define the word empathy for you. The word empathy literally means to have positive, helpful compassion. It's not just to feel sympathy for someone, but it's actually to have a positive compassion toward them, that you're willing to do something to aid them and help them. And so what you and I need in life, notice the difference between the other two. Both of the other two were standing. What's this person doing? They're on their knees. They're reaching down. In other words, this person is able to say, you know what? I've been where you've been before, and I've received the grace of God in my life, and God helped me to get out of the pool. Now I want to be a lifesaver to other people, so I want to be a recovered person who is helping other people recover as well. I want to be employed in the ministry of Jesus because the greatest, the greatest, the most awesome and mighty helper is none other than Jesus himself. Jesus is the most empathetic helper you'll ever encounter. Listen to Hebrews 4, 14 through 13. We're just about to conclude here. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to, what's the word there? Empathize with our weaknesses. When we're in a drowning situation, we don't have the strength to get out. He's able to empathize. He's able to actively come and compassionately help us, empathize with our weakness. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. He understands what we're going through. He understands the pain that we're in. He understands how we are feeling overwhelmed by life or overwhelmed by some kind of problem. Jesus says, I understand. I get it. I've been through stuff. Although I didn't sin, I walked as a human, a fully human, as fully God and fully man on earth. I get it. I understand the pain you're going through. I want to say to someone today, and I feel like the Holy Spirit's anointing is on this very word that God says to you. He understands what you're going through. He gets it. He knows where you are. He feels, but it's not just, I feel sympathy for you. I have the empathy. I have the compassion to do something on your behalf. And it goes on to say, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to do what? To help us in our time of need. I'll conclude with 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 because this is the call to us to be Jesus' people, to be recovery-minded people. And with this, we'll conclude. Paul writes these words to the Corinthian believers and says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. 
He, God, comforts us, you, in all our, your troubles, so that we, you, can comfort others. Why does God comfort us? What? So that we can comfort others. He says, I want to work in your life. I want to recover your life so that you can help other people recover. I, I comfort you so that you can comfort others. When they are, we can comfort them when they're troubled. We will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. You can't give what you don't have, right? You can only give what you've experienced and what you know. And I want to remind every one of us today as we wrap up this series on recovery, I want you to know today that God's plan for your life, for my life, for all of us is to bring us back to better. As he's bringing us back to better, he then allows us to be employed in his service to help other people come back to better as well. I want to be, and I say to God this morning, I want to be not only a candidate to come back to better, but I want to be a candidate used by you to help others come back to better too. If you believe that, can you say amen today? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word today. We're so grateful for the scriptures, so grateful for the word of God, and we come before you receiving your word today. In our hearts, we say amen to you. We acknowledge that we've heard from you this, this morning. And I pray, Lord, you'll help each one of us to really believe that you want to bring us back to better. Help us to understand that you're the greatest helper of all, that you'll pull us out of our mess, Lord, and you comfort us so that we can then be used to comfort other people around us. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus, you'd help us to be people of recovery for that. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I would like to close today by giving you an opportunity to ask Jesus to be the Lord of your life. Would you pray with me right now? Right where you are, just simply bow your head with me, and I'm going to give you a prayer to pray. And you can simply speak this prayer out, whisper this prayer out, and from the sincerity of your heart, call upon God, and I promise you that He will hear and answer you. So let's pray together. Start by simply whispering the name Jesus. Let there come uh, from your heart just the declaration of His name. Say, Jesus... I know that, that I am a sinner, that I have fallen short with you. I'm sorry for all of my sins. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you are God's Son. I believe that you are the Savior of the world. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that you rose from the grave, that you are alive today. Now pray these words. Say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. Give me a new start in you. I commit my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer with me, I want to encourage you with a promise from God's Word that says that when we call upon God's name, we call upon the Son of God, there is salvation that comes to our lives. He changes us from the inside out, and you become a new creation. All things pass away. All things become new. And that's exactly what has happened to you today. Your next step really is to make sure that you get into a good Bible-believing church. 
And you begin to study God's Word, get God's Word in you, and to make sure that you get a copy of the Bible if you don't have one and begin to read it. Spend some time every day in prayer. And I would encourage you also to check out the resources on our website that will help you to get going in your relationship with Jesus. You can find them at church-redeemer.org. Get those into your hands. Get started in your new life with Jesus Christ. Thanks again for joining us today. May God bless you, and we look forward to seeing you next time.